Father, we pray that uh, as we look at this, we wouldn't be uh, doing so just as any ordinary document, but rather that which uh, is your inspired word. We pray, Father, that therefore that we would be uh, focusing our minds and uh, that you would be softening our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What causes uh, fights and disunity in churches? How long have you got? Uh, misunderstandings, personal preferences, decisions that we don't agree with. Do you call Sunday school kids' church? Official pronouncement on executive decision now. It's kids' church from now on. Uh, what are the, the th there are these are a whole range of things that cause tensions and, and even undercurrents in churches. And sometimes there may be a particular issue which uh, seems to be the problem, but it's only the, uh, the surface issue, the, the presenting issue, because there is a deeper spiritual issue which is at the core of the problem. Over the years, I've known churches where, I've known churches where little spot fires of uh, disunity just kind of keep on breaking out every so often and then they get extinguished and then they just reignite later in another form over a different issue and uh, often centered around the same people and the problem is that uh, whilst each time the immediate issue is addressed uh, often the core issue isn't and the core issue may well be their identity are they truly rooted in Christ now, in the New Testament, the, uh, the Corinthian church has become somewhat of a case study of a church with problems. <laughs> and we saw some of those problems last week, uh, that there was, uh, in the church there was greed, there was immorality, there was spiritual pride, there was lack of love, and that was just to name a few. However, when writing this letter to the Corinthian church, uh, the, the first matter that the Apostle Paul chooses to address is this issue of disunity. And we see this in uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through to 17, which is our passage today. Now, how did Paul know that there was disunity in the church? Let me point you to verse 11, uh, if you care to open that up in your Bibles. In verse 11, where he writes, and I quote, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, the source of Paul's information on this is actually quite helpful for us because it came through a back channel uh, rather than through the church leaders. And that's something which uh, causes us to, uh, to take a step back and to consider how this letter came to be written and why it was written. Because it's one thing to read the content of a letter, but sometimes it's actually also helpful uh, to understand the relational context of the letter. And so with that in mind, we're going to come back to chapter 1, but I wonder if you could uh, flip over to chapter 16, the other passage which Benjamin read for us today. Because in chapter 16, right at the very end of the letter, in Paul's final greetings, we have some valuable information which he gives us in that regard. And I want to point out just three things from, for you from chapter 16. First of all, if you care to look at verse 9, 
It appears that when Paul wrote this letter, where was he? What does it say? He was in Ephesus when he wrote the letter. And uh, because of ministry opportunities that have, God has opened up for him in Ephesus, he plans to stay there for uh, somewhat longer. So he's in Ephesus, that's the first point. The second thing, in verse 12, we note that Apollos is with Paul. Um, and you see there that Paul says to the Corinthian Christians that he has actually encouraged Apollos, he's strongly encouraged Apollos to, uh, to leave Ephesus and to go to Corinth to visit the Corinthians, but Apollos was quite unwilling to go at that time. Now I want you to hold on to that thought because I think that uh, is actually helpful uh, for us as we go back to chapter 1. And thirdly, in verse 17, there were three men from Corinth who have, uh, um, from Corinth who, who have arrived in Ephesus. They've, that they've come from the church in Ephesus and they've come to visit Paul and their names are Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archaicus. Don't you love those names? Sort of Latin, Greeky kind of names, fantastic names. But uh, uh, there are three men who have come from Corinth to Ephesus to visit Paul. And that's key information because back in chapter 7, verse 1, partway through the letter, uh, Paul wrote in his letter saying, And now for the matters you wrote about. Now, what does that imply? it seems that the, the Corinthian church have written a letter to Paul, which we don't have possession of. And it uh, seems highly likely that Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archaicus have come in order to deliver that letter to Paul. Now, if there was division in the church, and if that was a key, the key problem then you might think that they would have raised that matter with Paul in their letter. But how did Paul find out about the division? It wasn't through the official channel, was it? it wasn't through the letter, it wasn't through Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archaicus, but rather it was through members of Chloe's household. Who was Chloe? Well, the truth is we don't know much about Chloe. All the information we have about Chloe is what we have in chapter 1. Um, it's possible and probable, I would suggest, that she was a businesswoman and uh, uh, quite probably based in Ephesus, uh, but who does business in Corinth. We saw last week how Corinth was a hub for trade and that uh, trade coming from the east, which is where Ephesus is, through Corinth and through to the west in, in terms of Italy and so on. And so it seems that she's a businesswoman, uh, that she conducts business uh, in Corinth. But whatever the case, uh, and it may well be that her, um, her servants have actually, whilst doing business in Corinth, have been part of the Corinthian church. What we do know is that Paul considers their reports as being credible uh, rather than being malicious gossip. And that's something which we need to be careful of when we hear uh, negative reports about other churches, problems that are going on in those churches, because uh, sometimes there's two sides to a story and sometimes the person who's actually talking to us might be the person who's the problem. <laughs> um, but here Paul 
It gives credence to these reports and he would have good reason for doing so. So in what sense is there division and was it just the presenting issue? Well, let's start drilling into today's passage, shall we? If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and I'm going to read to you from verse 10 where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's sort of a positive start in some ways, isn't it? Uh, Paul appeals to them. He's not commanding them. He actually wants to appeal to them on the basis of the gospel, that uh, grace would actually flow from them to deal with this issue. And he appeals to them that they would be perfectly united in mind and in thought. What's the difference between those two things? Well, some translations, it can be translated in mind and in judgment. That is that thinking certain things and actually making judgments, making assessments uh, in a way that is unified. The, the term perfectly united is an interesting term because it literally means knitted together. I actually prefer that, knitted together, because it, it, um, uh, it, it captures the idea well uh, because uh, knitting different uh, strands of wool together uh, forms a single and, and a useful fabric. I, I don't think Paul is suggesting here that, that uh, there should never be anything that Christians can hold a different opinion about. I mean, um, you know, when you're knitting, you can use different coloured wools and you can knit a, a row of pearl and a row of plain and, you know, make it all different. The issue is that it's actually knitted together, isn't it? It's knitted together. It doesn't tear apart. And the issue here is that there are certain core issues uh, upon which we should be knitted together because these are the basics. These are the basis of true Christian unity. Now, in my first five or so years here in this church, uh, I would have a, a common experience on Sundays uh, where I, I would say things which were core gospel issues and then discover, usually at the door shaking hands with people on the way out, that I had deeply offended and angered people. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were really angry with me. And the issue was because they were not united. They were united in certain things, but they were not actually united in the gospel. And that was a disunity which uh, the faithful evangelicals in the church had been here much longer than I had, had experienced for some time. It, it took a long time. It took a good many years for us to become, as a church knitted together in the gospel, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the basis of our unity. Now, these days, I would expect that the exact opposite would happen, that uh, if I or anyone else was to preach something which was not the gospel, then you'd be 
pretty upset about that, wouldn't you? I hope you would. I know you would, and rightfully so. We ought to complain strongly if the gospel is not preached. So we kind of get a little bit of a hint uh, here at the beginning that there may be an issue in Corinth which, which is actually just a little bit deeper than the issues reported by Chloe's servants. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. My brothers, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Now, what, what do you think that would look like? What, what do you think's what do you think is happening there? The church is divided. And people are identifying themselves as being followers of certain leaders. The poor followers, the Apollos followers, the Cephas or Peter. That's another name for Peter. The Peter followers. And then, of course, there's the Christ followers. They sound like they're probably the good guys, don't they? Yeah, I bet. They may be the ones who are saying, look, we just follow Christ, but actually with maybe a disrespectful attitude towards those other leaders. Uh, we're not really told, but that may be the case. Notice that Paul uses the uh, personal pronoun I rather than we. So it may not be the case that actual physical clusters of people have formed. They may have. And that's probably what we would expect might happen over time. But at least in their minds and in the way that they're judging certain things, people are clustering around the reputations uh, of certain Christian leaders, namely Paul, Apollos and Peter. Now, it's worth noting that there is zero evidence in the text or anywhere else to suggest that either of these men actually encouraged this. Some people love to be loved. Um, some people love to have people follow them. Sometimes they foster that themselves. And they can even uh, wedge people relationally away from other leaders white-anting the reputation and the ministry of others so that they can develop a following around themselves. And in so doing, they damage the church. And that's why in uh, passages like in Titus chapter 3, that uh, if there's a divisive person in the church, we warn that person once. If they don't repent, we warn them again. If they don't repent, Paul says, have nothing further to do with them. It's that serious. But it's not what's going on here in Corinth. Uh, Paul completely rejects the notion that anyone should follow him. In another passage he says, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. But it's in terms of an example of, of godliness, in terms of behaviour. But that's different to what's going on here. Paul rejects the notion that anyone should be a follower of Paul. Uh, Apollos, as we saw, uh, well, he was with Paul in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. 
And it's a bit speculative, but it may actually be that the disunity in Corinth um, may be one of the contributing factors as to why Apollos was unwilling to go to Corinth at that time, despite Paul's urging him to do so. Uh, because in going to Corinth, he perhaps didn't want to be stoking the fire a little bit. And it's an interesting, uh, when you think about Paul's attitude towards Apollos, because knowing that there was these divisions in Corinth, that Paul nevertheless encouraged Apollos to go to Corinth. And I think that that shows that Paul trusted Apollos. Uh, he knew that Apollos wasn't the problem. And the fact that Apollos didn't want to go uh, also uh, shows that to be the case. Because if Apollos was the problem, then he would jump at the opportunity uh, to head back to Corinth. And what about Peter? Well, <clears throat> we don't know much about Peter's relationship with the Corinthian church. Uh, we don't know for certain whether or not he ever visited the church. He may have visited Corinth... Uh, because in chapter 9, the Corinthians knew that when Peter travelled, that he did so with his wife. So they may have known that because he had come to visit them, although it's not um, clear that that's the case. Uh, we do know from Galatians chapter 2 that there was a disagreement that Paul and Peter once had. It was over the issue of Peter withdrawing from uh, from Gentiles, eating with Gentiles when some Jews from Jerusalem came uh, and they had to deal with that issue. But that is not an issue that in any sense comes up uh, in the letter to the Corinthians. So it seems it's... So Peter wasn't stoking the division either. Rather, in the rest of chapter 1 through to chapter 4, we discover two things about the division, about the favouritism that was going on. First of all, the main problem seems to be people who are puffed up for Apollos uh, and actually don't have a high regard for Paul. That seems to be the main problem and we'll see that over coming weeks. Secondly, the grounds of the favoritism is the phenomenon in the Greek world of the travelling philosopher, the itinerant philosopher. Uh, it was a popular thing in those days that there were men who would um, travel from city to city, from town to town, uh, that they would make money uh, by impressing crowds with their, their speeches, impressing crowds with their understanding of Greek wisdom and, and with their polished oratory. And people would come to, to see these great speakers and to be impressed by them. And the, the more polished they were in their presentation, the more money they could earn. And it seems that that is, that is still part of the fabric of the Corinthian church. And that uh, the, some of the Christians in Corinth were judging their preachers in that same way. And Apollos, uh, in Acts chapter 18, we learn that Apollos was a very well-educated man and that he was, he was eloquent. 
They came from, he was a Jew, but he came from the Greek city of, of Alexandria, which is an educational centre, a big library there. And uh, so uh, Apollos, uh, not because he's trying to impress people, but just because of who he actually is, would be quite impressive. Whereas Paul describes himself later when he, when he went to Corinth, he says, when I came to you, I came to you in fear and trembling. So he'd been beaten up in uh, other places that he'd, that he'd been to. Like he'd driven, been driven out of town in Thessalonica. And so in the comparison between the two, in a worldly sense, uh, people were attracted to Apollos. So how then does Paul address this? And, and what is the core issue? Verse 13. He poses some rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Now, earlier on, uh, when he says that some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, it literally reads, I am in Paul. I am in Apollos. I am in Cephas. And here he poses these three questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of of the Apostle Paul? And you can imagine everyone sitting there in the Corinthian church when this letter is being, being read out, no matter who they were following, everyone is saying no, 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 no to each of those questions. Because they're ridiculous questions. They're absurd questions. But they are the logical implication of what they were doing, their hero worship. And Paul wants to make that clear. See, the presenting issue in Corinth is the division. And some people might try to smooth that over by just getting people to talk and building their friendships with one another and making the peace. But the core issue is whether or not their identity is actually rooted in Christ. Sometimes when there are troubles in church, um, that may in fact may well be the problem. People may not actually be Christians. Um, there was a, a man in our church um, who had held an official um, position in the church and he was uh, uh, often complaining and critical and, and divisive. Just before he died, he told me that there's nothing that happens to you after you die, that there is no heaven, that there is no hell, that when you're dead, that's it. It's over and out. That was kind of a revelation to me because suddenly all of the other spot fires that I've been putting out with regards to this guy made sense. I understood the core issue. And that was, he was just a, a snapshot of other similar people and groupings within the church here at that time. More often, people are Christians, but they still have a, a way to go 
in terms of not being impressed by worldly things and setting aside their personal interests for the sake of others as Christ has done for us and grasping their true identity in the empty cross of Christ. Because when they do, they will value their leaders not because of their giftedness, but because of their faithfulness to the gospel. Now, Paul uh, repudiates the idea of anyone being in Paul. Uh, Check out verses 14 through to 16. Verse 14, he says, I'm thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that they were baptised into my name. Now, Crispus was most likely the synagogue ruler who in, uh, in Acts chapter 18, when Paul went to Corinth, uh, he was one of the first people in Corinth to actually give trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Gaius... Uh, may well be the man who uh, in Corinth, when Paul was in Corinth, he stayed in his his house. Because in Romans chapter 16, which Paul wrote from Corinth, uh, he talks about the hospitality of the man Gaius. So that might be the the relationship here between these uh, Paul and these men. But he says, I I, I baptised Crispus and Gaius... And he's glad he didn't baptise any more, lest anyone in that Corinthian context at the time should claim that they were baptised into the name of Paul. See, when you're baptised into the name of someone, it's a statement that you're giving your allegiance to that person, which is why we baptise into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in a a really nice piece of uh, just being human, where Paul's scribe Sosthenes probably wishes he had a word processor, uh, Paul says, hang on a moment, I think I've I've forgotten someone. And he says, I remember now that I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Remember him? Who's Stephanus? He's the guy who's with Paul. Uh, in, in, in Ephesus, having delivered the letter. And then Paul covers himself. Just in case he left anyone off the list, he says, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anybody else because it's not actually the reason that Christ sent me. Christ didn't send me to baptise. Not that baptism's not important and valuable, but Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel. And not with words of wisdom and style which might impress the devotees of Greek philosophy in the Corinthian church, but rather with the word of the cross. The cross, as we'll see next week, seems so foolish in comparison to Greek wisdom, seems so weak in comparison to those influential speakers but it's actually the power of God by which we are saved. In fact, in verse 17, any message that is more impressive than the cross 
actually empties the cross of its power to save. Any message that sounds more flash, more eloquent, more powerful than the cross of Jesus is actually a very weak message. It, it empties the cross of its power. And so, as a church, you and I need to be, keep on being knitted together, don't we? Uh, knitted together, uh, united, not in terms of personalities or favourite uh, preachers or favourite leaders. We're not to be knitted together in, by church traditions uh, or by um, ministry programs, as good as those things may be. We are to be knitted together. Our unity, that which is the only basis of true Christian unity, must be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep on working together. That is the fabric of who we are as the people of God, as a Christian church. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this uh, letter and we thank you for Paul's faithfulness that he did not enjoy people uh, longing after and, and idolising him, but repudiated that. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, we would be people uh, for whom the death and the resurrection of Jesus is at the very core of who we are as people and therefore who we are as a church. Uh, protect us, Lord God, from the disunity that happens uh, when the gospel is not at the very basis of who we are. We thank you for that gospel. We thank you for Jesus and his death and his resurrection for us. In his name, amen.